Well, I want to welcome you as well to Grace Bible Church. Every Sunday that we get to gather, it's, it's really a privilege. Like Josh said, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're so thankful for the grace of God that brings us together every week. So this Sunday, we're going to finish Ephesians chapter 1. We're preaching through the book of Ephesians, and we started about 12 weeks ago preaching this book. So today, we'll end chapter 1. Next week, Tyler Easton will be here. Tyler's a pastor at Northwest Bible Church, the church that we were planted out of, and he's going to encourage us from 1 Thessalonians 5. And then the next two weeks are Christmas-themed Sundays, so we'll be singing carols for all of you who are asking when are we going to start singing Christmas music, and that'll be great. So we're going to do kind of a longing and then fulfillment. So I'm going to take the 20th and talk about the anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. David Williams will be preaching on the 27th, talking about Christ being the fulfillment of all those prophecies that were made in the Old Testament. So we're very excited to exalt Jesus and celebrate his birth together. So one question I was thinking about as I was looking at this text this week was the different advances that we've seen over the years in technology, specifically in communications. When I was growing up, we had this almond-colored rotary phone. Remember this? It sat on my parents' nightstand. And, Andrea, you probably remember this too. And we'd dial the numbers and do this thing, right? And then, after a while, we got a cordless phone, which is every boy's dream, because now I could talk anywhere in the house. (laughs) Kidding, that was not my dream. But anyways, it it was an advance. It was a technology. When I graduated high school... Cell phones became kind of popular. They'd been around for the while, but no one really had them. And for my work and construction, I needed to have one, so I got one. And that was pretty cool, because then if you had coverage, you could talk to someone pretty much anywhere. And then, around 2007, Apple kind of reinvented the wheel and brought the iPhone. This was a smartphone, which you could access internet and video and email and all this kind of stuff. There's been a real transformation. And one thing about technology is that there's always something better coming. We're always kind of waiting for the next thing. Some people more than others. There's some people who are just waiting for the next model to come out or waiting for the next tech or we want something smaller or faster or better, all this kind of stuff. And this is true as we think about technological things. These advances, however, are not true when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no better version that you and I are waiting for when it comes to Jesus. As we saw earlier in Ephesians just last week, because of his resurrection from the dead and being seated at the right hand of God, he has been enthroned with power and authority over everything in the created universe. There's no better version coming. We're not waiting for another Jesus, another Messiah, another Savior to do a better job. He's come. And he has completely established his supremacy over the world. That's what Paul is communicating to us in this section of Ephesians 1. So, as we finish this morning, remember what we saw last week, that Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Father, seated at his right hand. We're going to pick up in that this morning. So I said that we had divided this last section into three different parts. First, God's power in Jesus. And we saw that with the resurrection, with the seating. We saw God's power in the heavens by placing Jesus over all the authorities and rulers and powers that are in the heavenly places. And this morning we're going to finish that second point. And then we're going to move on to our last point, point number three, which is God's power on earth. 
So I'd invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. I invite you to follow along as we read 15 through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me and because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My spirit rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or allow your Holy One to see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, we have seen in Ephesians what Psalm 16 is talking about, that Christ has been seated at your right hand Psalm 16 says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, this morning, help us to find our satisfaction, our joy, our treasure in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is seated at your right hand. You have magnified his name. You have exalted Christ over every other being and every other thing. And this morning, we simply want to affirm that from the scriptures and we want to celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. So God, open our understanding. Do the work that you have told us to pray for, Lord. You've said pray that your eyes would be opened and we ask for that this morning. Don't let us walk away from here unchanged. But by the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, open your word to us so that we would learn and grow, and that your word would have its effect. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to pick up this morning, as I said, kind of in the middle of the text because of where we left off last week. So we're going to pick up in the middle of verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul is telling us still about the power of God. We saw these different displays of God's power that he worked in Jesus. So he's telling us, 
that the power of God has been displayed in the heavens and we see Christ being put over all the authorities and the rulers. And then he says he's given him a name that is above every name, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So I want to look at that as we continue this morning. What's the significance, would you suppose, of bringing up this name? I mean, Paul has said it's Christ Jesus, it's the Son of God, whatever. Why do you think he emphasizes the fact that the name of Jesus that has been given to him is so superior? Why does he draw out the fact that it's both superior, right? It's the name above every name, and it's also everlasting, both in this age and the one to come. Okay, that's what Paul is telling us. And I think to understand the significance of this name, we need to understand a little bit more of what was going on in Ephesus at the time. I referred to this last week, but many of the new believers that were being converted to Christianity in Ephesus and the surrounding areas were being saved out of idol worship, false gods. It was steeped in magic and tradition and all sorts of icky things. In the practice of magic, the the naming of names was foundational. They would do these incantations and trying to summon the favor of whoever they were going after. And if you used the wrong name, you might really be in trouble because you might get something you didn't ask for, or so they thought, right? So knowing the right name to use at the right time in the terms of this culture in Ephesus was extremely important. This was the environment there. And so if you remember when we first started preaching through this book a couple months ago, I had said, if you want to get a handle of what's going on in Ephesus, read the book of Acts 18, 19, and 20. That kind of explains what Paul was doing at that time in the city of Ephesus. And so I'm actually going to ask you to turn there because I think there's a passage in Acts 19 that really helps us understand the significance of this name and what's the importance of naming names. So turn to Acts 19, if you would. Here's a little bit of background of what's going on here. There's some Jewish exorcists, people who claim to be able to draw demons out of people. And they're going around Ephesus, and they would come up to somebody and say, I noticed you're struggling with that evil spirit in you. Why don't you give me 10 bucks and I'll cast that thing out? Gone. Of course, this is what we would call a charlatan, someone who's doing something under the guise of being helpful but really wants to make money. So these people are going around and they see the Apostle Paul also casting out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they go, huh, that guy's got pretty good success. What if we just use that name and we could make more money? Okay, that's basically what's going on here. So let's look at Acts 19. I'm going to start in verse 13. I invite you to follow along as I read. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists That's quite the job, wouldn't it be? We've heard of itinerant preachers, but that's that's the first for me. So then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So these are second-handers, right? They're taking something they saw, trying to use it here. Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It's a bad day to be an exorcist. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or exalted. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, 
And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value and found it to come out to about 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Interesting. These people, these kind of false exorcists or whatever they were, recognized that there was power in the name of Jesus, which there is. We know this to be true. But they were taking it farther and saying, we could harness that power and use it for our own gain, which is no go. There is power in the name of Jesus. He's been given this name, this title, and there is power. So you see what's happening here in Ephesus. There was so much false teaching and superstition and customs in this practice of magic that Paul, in writing to the Ephesian churches, needs to tell them of the absolute superiority of Jesus' name over every other name. And how he does that is by saying, God the Father gave him this name that is above every name. There's no name equal to Jesus. He has no rival. This is not the cell phone idea where there's a better one coming. And Paul tells this to the church that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. God worked his power in him in this way and there is no equal to him. That's what they need to know. Now this is what he means also when he says not only in this age but also in the one to come. He's telling them that the name of Jesus, the position, the authority will never end. It is unlimited and it is everlasting. Paul puts this forward, I think, here to help the believers in Ephesus and to us to know that God displayed his power by subjecting everything under the feet of Jesus. We looked at that last week in reference back to Psalm 110 as well as Hebrews 2. Of course, in the context, these Ephesians needed to know that. They were dealing with all this false teaching in these spirits. But they needed to know that Christ is supreme. And Paul, remember earlier, he told us to worship Jesus because of what he has done. And I think he still has that in mind. And not only should we worship Christ because of his superiority over all these spirits, but remember all the other things that we've seen in Ephesians. We were chosen in Christ. We have adoption through Christ. We have an inheritance through Christ. Our sins have been redeemed. We've been forgiven of those in Christ. So for all these things, as well as the power that he possesses, Paul is calling these believers to not only recognize what Jesus has done, but to worship him for this superiority. If you want to look more at this idea of the name of Jesus being superior, there's a book called Name Above All Names. And it's Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg. And it is a wonderful explanation of the supremacy of Jesus and why he's worthy of that name. I've got copies at my office if you want to stop and grab one. So, keeping in mind what we talked about last week and then pairing it with what we just heard, we can see God's power in this text of Ephesians displayed in Jesus and in the heavenly places, right? He's over all these other powers and names. Now, let's look at the last two verses of Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, and we'll see this last point that we kind of started with last week, God's power on earth. It's number three, God's power on earth. Read uh, 22 and 23 again with me, if you would. Verse 22. 
of Ephesians 1. And he put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. After hearing that God has placed everything in the heavenly places under Jesus, Paul now moves into a more full and sweeping statement by saying it's not just the stuff that we don't see. It's not just the heavenly beings, but everything, all things are under subjection to Jesus. We should read this and think not only of the spirits and the forces of darkness and what he's already said, but really when Paul says all things are under his feet, we should believe that to be all things. Jesus Christ, as creator of all things, has the right to be in authority over them. Now you say, hey, hold on, hold on. Genesis 1 says God created the world. It doesn't say Jesus created the world. Well, there's a thing called the Trinity that we see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together to accomplish this. And many places in the Bible, we see Jesus active in the creation of the world. I just want to point out a couple because I think this is important to understand as we see him, Jesus, having authority over the created world. Two places I'll mention, or maybe three. Colossians 1, Paul says in verse 16, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. John 1, really familiar passage, hopefully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, John says, through the Word. Jesus takes an active role in the creation. Psalm 24, if you go to the Old Testament. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and the world and all who dwell therein, because he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. We see the right of God to take ownership over creation because he's the one who made it. The Bible affirms that over and over again. So Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was active in the creation of the world and therefore is worthy to have all things in the world that he created subject to him. So when Paul says the Father has put all things under the feet of King Jesus, we really should understand that to be all things. No exceptions. There's no part of the world that is kind of exempt from the authority of Christ. He rules it. He rules all of it. And that's a very good thing. So that's the first way that we see God's power displayed on earth. By Jesus being put over all of the creation. The second way is that we see it through the church and through Christ's relationship to the church. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Read 22 and 23 again with me in Ephesians 1. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God displays his power. Remember, that's the context we're in here. These are displays of God's power. God displays that power by putting Christ as head of the church. Other places in the New Testament, we see the body being used as an illustration to help us understand. For instance, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 
Paul uses the body as an example of how every member works together. You know, he says, if we were all an ear, where would the smell be? Or if we were all an eye, where would the taste be? He uses that illustration to help us understand there's no more significant Christians more than another. We're all in the body together. This isn't quite the same illustration in Ephesians 1. It's a head-body thing, yes, but it's more to point out that Jesus Christ as head is over the rest of the body. Most of us have our heads on top of our bodies. I say most because, never mind. Most of us have the head here, right? So we know that this is the top, this is the center. And a lot of times in the writing that was going on around the first century, especially medical writing and Plato and some of these really deep thinking people, they use this same analogy to refer to the head not only as a position of authority, but also as the center of decision-making, the center of control in these kinds of things. And so when we see that Christ is head, we should see that not only does he have the authority, but he's also the one who cares for, provides for, nourishes the rest of the body. It shouldn't be seen as some kind of just stiff, do what I say because I said it kind of authority. This is a loving, gracious providing authority that Christ has been placed in over the church. There's kind of a hierarchy, I guess. Maybe that's the wrong word. But to see Christ as the head, we are not equal with him in this way. He's been put in the position of authority. Paul uses this example again in Ephesians 5, and we'll eventually get there. In verse 22 of 5, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So he's referring back to what we're doing right now. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we're going to get into more of this when we get to chapter 5. But for the purpose of our text here this morning, using this head-body analogy, it's clear that Christ has been given this position of authority by the Father in regards to the church and it is one of authority. And we as the church ought to submit to Christ in all we do. If the word of Christ tells us something, we ought not go against that because he is our head. He is our authority. Second, by Paul using the word head, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, he's telling us not only that Jesus has authority over the church in kind of a do this, don't do this sense, but he's talking about him being the provider, the supplier of all we need in the church. We're going to get into that more when we get to verse 23. But Christ, as the head of the church, not only has this authority, but he's the gracious provider. And I really want us to get this because as we get into chapter 5, we're going to see this used as an illustration for husbands and wives. And what we don't want to see is that husbands have been placed in this authoritarian, dictator type role that we tell her what to do and she'd better do it because God told me so. That's not it. Husbands, you and I have been called to love our wives, to care for them, to provide for them, just as Christ does for the church. I'm preaching a message that shouldn't be here for a year. <laughs> we'll get to that later. So, by reading that Christ is the head of the church, we should see that he has authority over us, but he's also the one to care and provide for the church. Now, it's great to read that, and we see that and we go, cool, I see that in the text. But, how does that play itself out? in our church. Let's just use us as an example. How does that play itself out that Christ is the authority, the head? He's not physically sitting here telling us you better do everything I tell you. So how does this play itself out? 
Here's one way that I thought of. We're going to get into chapter 4 eventually. And there we're going to see that the risen Christ has given gifts to the church. Right? He gave gifts to men, it says. And among those gifts are pastors and teachers. Okay, men who have been called by God to stand under Jesus and on top of his word. We're in this little sandwich area with Christ above us and the word is our foundation. Okay, we're standing there and we are to provide leadership and stability and instruction and care for the congregations that God has put us over. We're all under the authority of Christ as believers. Okay, but in a local church context, there are certain men that God raises up to lead, to take responsibility, to defend the faith. And biblically, we refer to these as pastors and elders. Now, this is not to say that as an elder, I have the same authority of Christ. I don't. We are under shepherds. You know this from Hebrews in the end when it says, when the chief shepherd appears, we'll receive the unfading crown of glory. We are just servants, serving one another, equals with you. Elders is not some kind of elitist thing where we kind of look down our nose and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like you common people. That's not it at all. We're your servants. We're, we love you and we want to serve and provide and protect and do all the things that Christ has done for his church. It's one of the ways that we see this play out in the local church. So there's, there's a real significance to this. Okay, With Christ as the head, this is telling us something about the church. It's telling us something of the significance or the magnitude and the importance of a local church. When I talk about belonging to a church or being a member or being involved or whatever that is, it's, it's not because I think that, you know what, we're the only church. We, we got it together. You shouldn't go anywhere else. This is a place to be. That's not it. It's not because we want a bigger membership or because we want more cars in the parking lot or giving to go up. I don't care about that kind of stuff. I care about you. I care about your soul. I care about the fact that one day I'm going to stand in front of God and he's going to say, you pastored Grace Bible Church, what'd you do with it? What am I going to say? Well, I really emphasized membership so we had big giving. God doesn't care. He provides everything anyways. What we care about, what Christ cares about, is are you taking advantage of the means that God has provided for your growth, for your development, for your good? This is it. The church isn't plan B. This isn't some afterthought of God. He's like, oh my goodness, Israel blew it so bad, we got to come up with another plan. This, this didn't work. We, we got this. What can we do? What can we do? Uh, church. We'll have church. That isn't it. We are the people of God. We've been called into his family and adopted here. This is his plan for you to grow and be fed and be nourished and challenged. This is the place for that. And if grace isn't for you, we'll help you find a good church. It isn't about growing this context. It's about are you plugged in? Are you growing? Are you loving Jesus and living the gospel? That's what I want for you. That's what I want for you more than anything. Now, we have a few minutes left. Let's look quickly at the last verse, at verse 23. And this seems to be a verse that no one can really agree on. And you might read it and go, oh, that's pretty obvious what's going on. But a lot of people have different ideas as to what the interpretation of the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? That's kind of the question when it comes to this verse. So I'm going to give you three different views really quickly. 
and tell you why I don't think the first two are right, and then I'll show my cards and we'll talk about the last one just for a minute. So, trying to interpret what verse 23 means. One of the views says that when we read the fullness of him who fills all in all, it's referring to the church itself. Okay, in this view, the church in some way completes Jesus by proclaiming the message of the gospel, taking the good news to the ends of the world, filling up what is called of us to do. Now, the reason that I don't think this is the right interpretation is that because for the last seven verses or whatever it is, Paul has been laboring to magnify the supremacy of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. So for him to go through all of that and then say, Christ is supreme, Christ is the authority, he is the head, but he really needs you. You you need to do this or he's not going to be complete. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't think contextually that fits in. Second view would be that the fullness of him who fills all in all is referring to Christ himself. In this view, God the Father fills Christ, who in turn fills everything else, the church, the world, whatever. This might be attractive, but here's a reason why I don't think that's correct. In Colossians 1, very close to where we read earlier, Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Jesus is already full. He doesn't need the Father to fill him in some extra way so that he can finally have enough to give to the church. He is God, eternally. And there's no reason for God to have to fill him more. He is the fullness of God, according to Colossians 1. So I don't think that's the right one. Here's what I think. When we read the fullness of him who fills all in all, it means that the church is the fullness of Christ, not because we add to him, but because he's the one who fills us. As Christians, we are always, when it comes to our relationship with God, on the receiving end. We receive from him grace upon grace upon grace. God, uh, in Acts, it says that God is not like us. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He's the one who gives to us life and breath and everything. So I think when we read this, the view that exalts Jesus Christ, that puts the church in right relation to him, is the one that says Christ is the fullness of God and he fills the church. And therefore we are equipped to carry out the mission of sharing the gospel with everyone. So, we made it through chapter one. It's been, it's been very good. I, I've so much enjoyed preparation, preaching, and I'm excited for the rest of the book. I'm excited to keep moving. But as we close this chapter now, I want to leave us with two main points of application, specifically referring to 15 to 23, which we've been in now for the past four weeks. And as I was thinking about, okay, what, in response to what we've seen, the power of God, demonstrated in these different ways, what, what should we come away with? There was two things, and we'll end with this. I think that in our knowing and in our prayer, we can apply this with four words. God can do it. God can do it. I don't know exactly what you're up against, I don't know what the coming week holds for you. 
I don't know what this afternoon holds for me. We don't know, right? But whatever we come up against, God can do it. And not only does he have the ability to help and the power to help, he has the willingness. He demonstrated that by pouring out his love on us through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we need to know, that's the first part, we need to know that God has the power. He has the power to do whatever we ask. The second way to apply this would be in our prayer, in our prayer life. Knowing what we've read here, and knowing that the power of God has been demonstrated in these areas, do you, do you pray like that? Do you pray prayers that assume God is all-powerful and able to answer your prayer? I'm not talking about presumption. I'm not talking about saying, oh, God could give me a new truck, so I'm going to pray for a new truck. No, we know that we pray according to the will of God. We've talked about that. But do you pray to a God that the scripture tells us about, or do you pray to a God that you've manufactured in your own mind? A God who's more like you, a God who has weakness, a God who has you know, a little bit of inability in him. No, we pray to a God who is all-powerful, who demonstrated that power by raising Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand, giving him all authority, placing him as head of our church. That's the God we pray to. So when we come to him, We come to a God who not only loves us and cares for us, but wants to be the one to supply everything for it. God can do it. He can do it. All you got to do is ask him. So I'd encourage you to know this, know the power of God, and pray to a God who is all-powerful. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Lord, the displays of your power are everywhere around us. We see this in the created world. We see this in our own life. We see this in the way that you answer prayer or don't answer prayer for our good. And Father, it's been such a joy and a privilege to look over these past weeks at these displays of your power. There's no limit to what you can do. There's no line that you come to and say, oh, I can't cross that. You have all power, all authority, and we gladly admit that, and we gladly submit to your power in our lives. And Father, we ask that you would do what only you can do as we come against circumstances and problems, heartache and relational stress. God, show your power in us by working in our lives in a way that only you can. And would we then give you all praise and glory and honor because you are worthy of it. Oh, do this in our church and glorify yourself here, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.